Uh, good morning. Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> May the words of my mouth and the deliberations of our hearts be acceptable to you, almighty creator God. Amen. Well, this morning I'd just like to take some time to look back at this series that we're going through, the, uh, the journey with Jesus, we've called it, um, uh, through the book of Matthew. And so far in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, we've seen the stories of the leper, which is Jesus' power over despair, the centurion's daughter, Jesus' omniscience, his power over time and space. Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus' power over disease. The storm, Jesus' power over nature. The demon-possessed man, Jesus' power over demons. The paralytic man, Jesus' power over difficulty and his power to forgive sins. And the raising of the official's daughter, Jesus' power over death. Today we come to the end of chapter 9 and you may remember that last year we studied the next chapter, chapter 10, in quite a bit of detail, looking at how Jesus sends out the disciples into the local towns and villages. So chapter 9 brings us to the end of a series of accounts of Christ's miracles only for us to find that Jesus has been preparing us to take the good news out and share it with the world. So it's fitting, therefore, that uh, next week is Pentecost, uh, where we acknowledge the, the gift of the Holy Spirit as guide and comforter in our task. And we will return to the journey with Jesus in two weeks' time, in chapter 11. But meanwhile... In today's message, we see in the healing of the two blind men, Jesus' power over darkness, and in the healing of the mute, Jesus' power over isolation. William Temple was Archbishop of Canterbury at the end of World War II, and he said, the man blind is every man. We're all spiritually blind, seeing the world darkly, isolated, until we encounter Jesus and begin to see and experience the world through his eyes. And finally, in verse 36 of chapter 9, when he sees the multitude of people following him, Christ demonstrates to us his power over disbelief. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There are three things to note. The first is that Christ saw the crowds. It all starts with seeing. It's quite possible to look at something and see nothing at all. Jesus saw the multitudes, and often that can be hard for us to do. To see the 
crowds of the world requires something inside us to change. It means redefining our view of humanity. All of us gravitate toward what uh, Pastor Ray Pritchard calls the PLU, people like us. Whether it be at the footy club or the supermarket or the local school or in our own churches, by nature we tend to hang around people who look like us, talk like us, act like us and think like us. Our kids marry their kids. We raise our children to fit into the localised social order. And that's not wrong. But if we're ever going to see the crowds as Jesus did, we must open our eyes and break the mould. Jesus saw something the disciples didn't see. Were they blind? No but they didn't see what he saw. We may live our whole lives bombarded by the call of God and see nothing, feel nothing. The world is full of people who are not like us and the first step is to see them. The second point is that Christ felt compassion. The word used means to feel it in your bowels. When we talk about feeling something deeply, we talk about the heart. But in the first century, they meant something much deeper and lower. Sometimes we talk about having a feeling in our gut about something. It means to be emotionally moved by what we see around us. And the third thing is that Christ knew their condition. Jesus said the people were like sheep without a shepherd. He used two particular words to describe the people of the world. The first was harassed. It's a, a graphic word um, that in the past was more like to torture, to physically assault, uh, as in the scourging of Christ. And Christ saw the crowds as people who were like sheep that had been physically abused, that they had been harassed, victimized by those who used them and tossed them aside. The second word is that they were helpless, literally to be cast down from a mortal wound. They were wounded and left for dead. Please try and understand what Jesus is saying to us. Until you see, you will not feel. And until you feel, you will not know. And until you know, you will not care. And until you care, you will not pray. And until you pray, you will not go. The world is full of people who are wounded, bruised, mangled, cast down, their lives just ebbing away. And as long as we close our minds, we will never see what Jesus saw. So we must pray, Lord, open our eyes that we may see the world through your eyes.
And then in verses 37 and 38, we read, Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you see the key word in verse 37? It's a little word. Then. He saw. He felt. He knew. And then he called his disciples to action. Having spent all his time showing us his miraculous authority, his omnipotence, Christ goes on to say, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. No, the shortage isn't found in the harvest. Christ sees a harvest that's ready. Farmers will tell you that you can't harvest when you have the time. It's a case of reap now or never, or the time for harvest will end, and what is missed is lost. According to the latest census information, Tasmania is the most unchristian state in Australia. 50% of the population identify as having no religion. In our world, we are told that nobody wants to hear what we Christians have to say. However, a, a recent large survey in America posed the question, what would it take to get you to go to church? And the number one answer was, someone to ask me to attend. Maybe the people of this world are more ready to receive the good news than the church is ready to give it. The harvest is plentiful. Christ saw that there were many people ready to be harvested for the kingdom and all around us there are broken, hurting people, ripped apart, left to die. And they are ready to be reached if only someone will go to the harvest field. The harvest is plentiful all the world over, not only in the desperation and poverty of the traditional mission fields, but also outside our own doors, from Mongolia to Mornington. We do not have to look far to see people in need. And that's the good news. But the harvest needs workers, and that's the bad news, because the laborers are few. Harvest work requires harvest workers. And why are there so few laborers? Well, working in the fields isn't very glamorous. It's hot, hard, slow work. If we're going to become laborers in the harvest, it will require a major rearrangement of our priorities. Listen to the words of uh, Pastor Stephen Cole. Don't throw away your life to achieve some dream of financial security or early retirement 
and a motor home so you can spend your final years driving around to capture the national parks on your phone. Spend your life for the only purpose that lasts, to see the nations glorify God for his great mercy in Christ. Or to paraphrase the words of the Irish poet David White, when finally people struggle through the weeds and read the inscription on my tombstone, I don't want it to just say he paid his bills. Maybe we need to ask ourselves some serious questions at this point. Can you remember back in 2018 our vision and direction document? Anybody? It was the birth of our themes of follow, bless and share. How about our mission statement for this year? Christ, calling and community. Well, how's it going with you? What vision is God creating in your heart today? Where and to what are you being called? How will you be remembered? How much are you willing to invest? And Christ's answer? He calls his people to prayer. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And we're not to pray for the harvest, but for workers. It's simple, it's clear, it's concise, and it's definitely dangerous. It's a good thing and a frightening thing to ask God to blast us out of our comfort zone and to pull us away from the status quo and to do with us things that make us very uncomfortable. Jesus specialised in making people feel uncomfortable. He told the rich young ruler to sell all that he had, give it to the poor, and then come follow him. How comfortable are you with the thought that maybe Jesus really meant it when he said, give all that you have to the poor? The God of the Bible is not the God of the status quo. First he shakes us up and then he uses us to shake our world. When God wanted to change the world, he told Noah to do something never done before, build an ark, and to prepare, prepare for something he'd never seen before, a flood. When God wanted to create a great nation, he called a successful middle-aged businessman named Abram and told him to leave where he was living and go to some unspecified place across the desert. When God wanted to deliver his people, he found a man slow of speech named Moses and sent him to talk to Pharaoh. When the Lord needed someone to hide the spies in Jericho, he found a prostitute named Rahab. When God needed someone to defeat Goliath, he chose a shepherd boy named David. When God wanted to deliver his people from destruction, he chose a young girl 
named Esther. When Christ wanted some men in his inner circle, he chose fishermen and tax collectors, a loudmouth named Peter and two brothers called the Sons of Thunder. And he told them to drop everything and follow him. Talk about doing things you're not used to. God uses ordinary people to perform extraordinary acts in his name for his kingdom. He's not a God of the status quo. And we are also ordinary people who may be called to perform extraordinary things in his name. But whilst we all like to say, let's make progress in reaching the world, and no one wants to change. Everyone wants progress. No one wants change. Change propels us out of our comfort zone, forces us out of our ruts, destabilizes our routine, challenges our priorities, and disrupts our plans. Change causes us to ask new questions and seek new answers to old questions. Change introduces us to a whole set of new problems. Change opens the door to exciting opportunities, stretches us in ways we don't want to be stretched, upsets the apple cart. Change kicks us out of the recliner, rearranges our daily schedule. Sometimes God looks down from heaven and says, it's time for change. John 1.14 The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.17 Our Lord did not come into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Our God is not the God of the status quo. If the world is going to be changed, the church must be changed. We need to be shaken out of our complacency, moved out of our materialism, woken from our slumber, convicted of our indifference, shocked out of our lethargy so that we might become what God wants us to be. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. We might think Jesus would say, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore let the pastors preach dynamic sermons. Let committees meet and make great plans. Let the people read books and attend training courses. Jesus doesn't mention any of those worthy things. The church is to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. The church's primary response to the needs of the world can be summed up in one word, pray. What would the church be like if 
First, we pray, and then we meet to worship. First, we pray, and then we sing praises. First, we pray, and then we preach the word. First, we pray, and then we give generously. First, we pray, and then we organize and plan. And first, we pray, and then we go. We pray to the Lord of the harvest because all things are by him and through him and from him and for him. Jesus said we are to ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers. That's uh, the Greek word used uh, means to eject to cast out, forcefully propel, thrust out, divine compulsion and propulsion. When Hudson Taylor, the Baptist ministry in China in the 1800s, spoke about the need for additional workers in the field, he put the matter this way, if we are to meet the needs of the world, two things must happen. First, there must be earnest prayer to the Lord of the harvest. And second, there must be a deepening of the spiritual life of the church so that men will be unable to stay home. And he was right. We must pray and then deepen our own walk with God so that when God calls, we will care more than some think is wise and risk more than some think is safe or dream more than some think is practical or expect more than some think is possible. In the Message Bible, Eugene Peterson puts it this way, what a huge harvest, he said to his disciples, how few workers on your knees and pray for harvest hands. Who knows what God will do in the world once you and I begin to pray together. Who knows what God will do in this church once we begin to pray together. Who knows what God will do in us and through us once we begin to pray together. There are so many people who are desperate for salvation. The harvest is plentiful. In Australia, a little under 20% of people attend church at least once a month. This is a fairly low bar to describe what it means to be a Christian. And yet about 50% of people in the census identify as Christian. So the harvest is plentiful, even if we start at the easy place of sharing with the huge number of people who claim to be Christians but don't ever go to church and are not living in the way of the Lord. Jesus tells us to pray. Meanwhile, 
we must not forget the next bit that Jesus also sends us out into the harvest fields to make disciples, sharing the gospel not only with our friends and family members, but with all those we come across on our journey through life. The people closest to us will judge whether this God stuff works in our lives. But we're not responsible for results. We're just to pray and to witness. We're not necessarily all called to be evangelists, but we are all called to pray for the Lord to release workers into the harvest field. Are we blind? What do we see when we look at the world around us? Are we deaf, mute? Can we hear the cries of despair? Are we working in the harvest? Are we effective workers for God's harvest? The harvest the Lord wants us to be aware of? The harvest God sent his son for? The harvest Jesus died for? Disturb us, Lord. Can you pray that prayer? Open your life and say, Lord, come in and rearrange it so that I will be of maximum benefit for your kingdom. We serve a God of grace, but he won't accept the status quo either. Disturb us, Lord, and let's see what God will do. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please send your workers out into the harvest field. Show us who to talk to about you and how to do this. And may the harvest be great. Lord of the harvest, we confess how comfortable it is to come to church to worship with your people. We are so richly blessed. And yet, Lord, we are so poor. We have eyes but do not see, we have ears but do not hear, lips but do not speak, feet and don't go. We thank you for loving the world. Thank you for inviting us to join you in bringing your message to the world. And we offer you our best in the service of the King of Kings. All ages, to all abilities, Blast us out of our complacency, Lord. God, do things we're not used to. Do things that baffle and amaze us. Ignite a fire in our hearts. Send us forth as ballistic Christians. Thrust us out from this place to every corner, to wherever there is a need. Give us your heart and make us willing to go. Send us, O Lord. Send me. Raise up a new generation of workers for your harvest field. Amen.
Um, later today, we'll put John's prayer on our Facebook community group because I'd love you to be able to pray through that each day this week. Wouldn't that be something? And uh, 